uh, the title of um, the passage uh, that I've given the passage of, of this sermon, um, you'll see on the inside of your service sheets, is contented dissatisfaction. Contented dissatisfaction. Uh, that idea of being content, of being okay with, comfortable in, uh, settled, um, confident in God in the midst of very dissatisfying situations. And it's a contented dissatisfaction that if we get it, if we get it, it will transform our lives. It'll transform our lives. Um, So that's where we're heading. Um, Hopefully that'll help you to get into the passage more and to come away with the right idea of whether you should be an optimist or a pessimist. Really, we should be... Actually, it seems there was a consensus view that Jesus was neither. And I think he had this contented dissatisfaction. Let's, um, uh, Let's... Pray as we begin. Our Father, as we look deeply into this passage, uh, even though the time is short, we pray that you might uh, speak to us, that you would work in us, that you would allow these words to sink deeper than they've ever sunk before. By your Spirit, would you begin to transform our hearts that would transform our lives? Would we understand the Gospel more deeply uh, through all this? In Jesus' name. Well, on your sheets, you'll see uh, there, um, firstly, just uh, just a little uh, opening heading, a clash of cultures. Um, We'll actually see a clash of cultures was going on here. Um, We saw last week that Jesus started to brush up against the religious leaders, and they were really frustrated that he was breaking down their religious structures, and he was healing on the Sabbath day when you absolutely weren't supposed to be working. And he was asking that question, should you do good or evil on the Sabbath? The, the obvious answer is, is do good. Um, but in coming up against these religious structures, he was breaking them down. And he was saying, you need, you need new wineskins, you need new bottles, you need new containers to understand me. Because I am the bridegroom, I am God himself among you. I bring life to the full. I bring fullness of life. But you can't shove me into your own life containers, into your own sort of fixed worldview. You need to break all that down and allow me to reshape you. And there's a clash going on there. And as we go out into our world, we won't meet the same kind of people as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that we met last week. Um, On the whole, we'll meet uh, the majority of this country are either literally materialists. That means someone who is basically an atheist, who believes that the only thing around us that we can see and touch, that that's the only thing that we can exist, the only things that you can test scientifically uh, are the only things that exist. There's no God, there's no eternity. Um, and if there is an eternity, we won't be there, we'll be rotting. And, um, and so you just live for, for what's around you. And there are people who hold that worldview very strongly. Um, uh, a friend of mine posted on Facebook uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, if anyone uh, teaches, brings up their child religious, that is child abuse. He said, I want to out myself as an anti-theist, he said. Um, that's a pretty strong view. I, I don't think that's a majority view. But I think the majority would be uh, functionally materialist. That means whatever we believe, we believe there might be a God out there. Actually, we really just live for the now anyway. We live as if when we die we rot, and so we've got to, we've got to amass as much enjoyment and satisfaction out of the here and now as we possibly can. And Jesus comes into that worldview, and he completely breaks it apart, and he helps us to see that there's something way bigger, and if we really get it, 
And if we really understand who he is, who God is, what it means to know him, then it'll transform our lives. So then you see on your sheets that we get contented dissatisfaction. This idea of being satisfied, of, of being content, of being okay within a very unsatisfactory situation, modelled by Jesus, just straight there at the beginning of our passage. You may not have even noticed it, but it's there in verse 12 at the top of the sheet. <coughs> One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. It's very, very striking detail that Luke gives us here. I don't know, we were talking about a little bit over lunch, um, as we were chatting about Superman versus Batman, and the idea that Superman is presented in the new film as a kind of god. And I think we often think of Jesus as a kind of Superman. He had these kind of supernatural powers. And, and yet actually we see here... He didn't have supernatural powers. He was literally a man, a human being, just like us. He was the eternal son of God, one person, but who took to himself humanity. And as to his humanity, as to his human experience, he lacked wisdom. And so as he was about to appoint the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles... He needed to pray. And he realised how significant this was. And so he spent a whole night in prayer, seeking his father for the wisdom that he needed. And you can imagine him sort of going through the list of all his sort of hundred or so people around him. He's like, oh, you know, Simon Peter, he's an obvious one. He's a bit hot-headed. And, oh, Father, I'm really struggling to know whether I, really should he be? And... And just going through the list of names and praying each one. Lord, give me wisdom. And the Lord, the Father, his Father, gave him that clear wisdom. And so when morning came, when morning came, he appointed them. It's striking, isn't it? What decisions do we face? What different life issues do we face? What struggles? Well, we need to follow Jesus' example and work them through in dependence on our Heavenly Father in prayer. Jesus models that contented dissatisfaction because he doesn't know. There are problems he faces. There are wisdom calls. But he finds his contentment in his Heavenly Father. And so he can press on in the face of problems, make decisions, and so on. Well, then we see that sort of clash of cultures continuing a little bit in verse 13. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. So we've seen up till now this this clash going on between him and the religious leaders in Israel, among the Jewish people. And um, then suddenly, he's appointing twelve men. If, um, there's someone sporty here. Matt, you're ready to do sports gear. Adam, if, if Adam went out of the common in sports gear and, um, uh, and had a whole load of crowd of uh, guys around him and he just chose one after the other until he got to 11, well, we'd know exactly what he was doing, wouldn't we? We'd know he was appointing a football team. And 
the number 12 was very, very significant. So Jesus gathering a whole group of guys and men and women around him, and he choosing 12 men, very, very significant. He's, the 12 tribes of Israel were the founders of the Jewish nation. And Jesus is in effect saying, look, here's the new structure. I said that you need new wineskins for the new wine. Well, here's the new structure. He's saying that he has the authority to build an entire nation. And that's what he's going to do. <coughs> it's just worth noting as we look at this list of names, though, that although three of these men are perhaps some of the most famous who ever lived, um, Simon, who he called Peter, Peter was kind of the leader of the church as it started, uh, John wrote the Gospel of John, Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, a few others get the odd mention, and then some of them we, we know almost nothing about. Uh, James was dead within a couple of years, um, all of them were dead before their natural end, except for John, who stayed alive into his 80s and wrote John's Gospel. It's very striking, isn't it, that these men who Jesus chose to change the world, many of them are actually still, in our history, insignificant. And also within them, there's this amazing variety. So you've got um, Matthew there, who uh, we also know it's called Levi. Um, he's the guy who was called just in the previous chapter, um, the tax collector. And he would have been an enemy of the Jewish people, because he, or a traitor to the Jewish people, because he was collaborating with the Romans to collect taxes, doing it in a horrible, horrible way. He would have been the absolute <laughs> epitome of the very thing that... Simon, who was called the Zealot, one of the last ones mentioned, uh, would have hated. A Zealot was someone who was desperate to see the Roman occupying force forced out and the nation of Israel re-established. And Jesus calls these men from two absolute extremes. They're natural enemies, and he brings them together. It's so striking, isn't it? The people that Jesus calls to himself. Well, we continue into the passage, uh, and let's read on in verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. Uh, some people say this is the same as the Sermon on the Mount, that he's coming down the mountain, and he's standing on a level place on the mountain. I I'm convinced that actually this is, is different, that Jesus would have preached almost every day, again and again and again, and so this is him sitting in a different setting, saying some similar things, because he's starting his ministry. Um, but we don't need to worry if there's slight differences with Matthew, because actually... Yeah, Jesus would have preached the same message in different ways, day in, day out. Um, Jesus went down and stood on a level, level place. A large crowd of disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and all the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. I mean, it's just, just mentioned in passing, isn't it? He does have extraordinary power. But it's because he's depending on the Holy Spirit to enable him to heal. And it's authenticating him. It's showing that he has the authority as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, to teach them. 
But his priority is teaching, as he's told us many times before. But here, as he teaches the disciples, we're told, he's also teaching the wider crowds. He's constantly reaching out. That's interesting, isn't it? That idea of what's meant for the inner circle is also meant for the onlookers. And we need to be constantly thinking, how can we bring people in to hear the words of Jesus, even if they wouldn't yet call themselves a follower of him? We've got to be comfortable with the idea of people who aren't followers hearing everything that's going on and drawing them in. But now we get into this famous passage, uh, often known as the Beatitudes, um, another word for blessing. Uh, but you also get uh, the woes uh, in this passage, and that's where it's different from Jesus' sermon in Matthew. And we're here on contented dissatisfaction, that tension um, between whether you're glass half full or glass half empty. And as we come to this word in verse 20, blessed, we need to know what it means. Um, it can often be used in very kind of silly, touchy-feely kind of contexts in which it loses any real meaning. Um, I think being blessed by God is to have real, deep, lasting joy and genuine prosperity. Real, deep and lasting joy and genuine prosperity. It's, it's a mixture of the physical and the spiritual. It's a true contentment. And yet, through these blessings and woes, you get the theme of reversal. What you don't have now, well, you're blessed because you'll have something later. There's an eternal perspective here that breaks open the materialistic worldview, the idea that only what we see around us is meaningful. And so looking at his disciples, Jesus says, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. But before I read the next one, actually we, what we need to see is that these blessings and woes are tied together. I don't know if you noticed it as Lucy read it to us. But all the four blessings connect to the next four woes. And so that's what we're going to do now, is we're going to look at them in, in pairs. So Jesus says, in verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But then verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. The question we might have here is, well, well how poor? How rich? I, I wouldn't think of myself as rich, but, but then I think of myself as poor. Maybe that's what some are thinking here. I personally would probably think of myself as rich. Does that mean I'm therefore excluded? Actually, any of us, if we're in this country, are rich compared to the rest of the world. How rich? How poor? Well, I think that the end of the, the woe is very helpful. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. You, you could put that in... Other words, you could say, for you already find your satisfaction in something. And that something is not God himself. You are self-sufficient. You see, in the, in the Bible, the poor so often are those who see they have nothing to offer God. And that their needs are met by God alone. And they can see that, it doesn't matter how much money they have or they don't have. So in Psalm 34, verse 6, the great King David, who had 
plenty of riches, says to God, this poor man called and the Lord answered him. He's coming before God in utter dependence, knowing that only God can give him what he needs. And we know Jesus can't mean just literally rich or poor in financial terms, because Jesus calls himself Levi, Matthew, the very rich tax collector who lined his pockets with uh, the money of his people. Then, you see, wealth gives us the false idea that independence is possible. And so we, do, we don't just need to completely spiritualise it. We do need to worry. If we have plenty of money and plenty of resources, we need to think about that. Because wealth and opportunity gives us the false idea that independence is possible, that we can survive on our own, that we're okay on our own. And then it's very dangerous because we think we're self-sufficient, that we, we don't need God. And we become like, we become stupid, crazy, mad, like a branch that cuts itself off from a tree. You know, it's a big, booming branch and it's got wonderful leaves shooting off it and it looks very impressive. And just imagine if psychologically a branch could actually literally cut itself off from a tree and set itself up. It might look still impressive and flourishing, but if it's cut off from the source of life, it can only wither and die. And actually you can have this independent mindset, this idea of being self-sufficient and still be poor because you're chasing after wealth that it might satisfy you rather than pursuing God. It's been said that money can buy you a house, but not a home, a bed, but not sleep, companionship, but not friendship, entertainment, but not happiness. See how Jesus is forcing us to realise that we can have a contentment in the dissatisfaction of being poor. And in fact that's much more healthy if it forces us to look to God for our wealth and our security for all eternity. Let's keep going. Verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. But then verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Now it's weird here, it's not spiritual hunger, is it? Blessed are you who are spiritually hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Well, that makes sense, but then woe to you who are well fed spiritually now, for you will go hungry. No, 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 if if we're well fed by God, being taught by his word, if we're delighting in a relationship with him, okay, so there must be something about, it's a mix of spiritual and physical, isn't it? As Jesus was saying that, that although it's not appropriate to fast when Jesus is with us, to deny ourselves food when he's with us, because we're celebrating with him, there's a, there's a party, there's a joy, he brings fullness of life. When he's not with us, we hunger for him. And sometimes denying ourselves or being denied, even the next meal, just reminds us of a deeper hunger for God. And sometimes being physically satisfied, well, actually, we forget that we need anything from God. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. Oh, sorry, verse 21. Sorry, verse, verse 21, we'll come on to that. Verse 21, second half, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. It's, it's weird, this. He's basically saying, happy are you who are sad. Sad are you who are happy. How does that work? 
Well, again, there's that tension. Jesus expects that in following him, life's not going to get easier, it's going to get harder. We're going to see that just in a moment. He doesn't promise to make all your problems go away. In some ways, he gives us more problems. But he says, if you're, if you're weeping for the fact that you're not fully reconciled to God, if you're groaning, as Jim described, as we headed into that time of prayer, then, then we've got that confidence if we're, we're groaning towards God, if we're reaching out to him, if we're saying, Lord, I need you, I just can't cope on my own anymore. Well, then in that frustration, in that dissatisfaction, you can be deeply content because he loves to answer those prayers of crying out to him to meet our deepest needs. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil, because of the Son of Man. Now that little phrase, because of the Son of Man, that kind of explains the whole thing. Blessed are you who are poor because of the Son of Man. Blessed are you who hunger now because of the Son of Man. Blessed are you who weep now because of the Son of Man. Son of Man is the name Jesus used for himself. The, the human figure who in the Old Testament was given all authority by the Father, who every nation, tribe and language worshipped. That's the title of the Son of Man that Jesus takes to himself. And he says, if you're coming after me for fullness of life and it ends up making life worse for you, if you end up being hated and excluded and insulted and persecuted because of me, well, verse 23, rejoice in that day, not, not in the future. So often we hear the phrase suffering now, glory later. Well, actually, it's suffering and joy now. Rejoice in that day. It's the same as um, James, uh, Jesus' brother, writing uh, many years later, says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Rejoice in that day, Jesus says, and leap for joy. That, that's the language of a lamb dancing around the fields. Rejoice in the day that you're being hated and insulted and persecuted because great is your reward in heaven for that's how their ancestors treated the prophets. If you're rejected for trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, not for just being a complete pain, not for smelling or being irritating to people or just getting on their nerves. No, but because you're following Jesus, if you're rejected for that, rejoice. Because actually that's a mark of true discipleship. It's always been that way, he says. On the flip side, verse 26, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. There's a cost in following Jesus. I, I remember this very clearly. The first time I heard that verse knowingly uh, was as a uh, 17 going on 18 year old. And I'd um, started following Jesus at school and I'd known that joy of uh, of telling people about him, of just experiencing that fullness of life. Suddenly everything I was doing, my, my music, my work, my food, everything tasted better because I was following Jesus and I knew that he gave life to the full. And yet as I went out with this good news to friends, a lot of them thought I was weird. I probably was pretty weird in some ways. Um, and, and that I deserved to be uh, teased for and so on. Um, but there came a point when I realised that, that actually talking about Jesus is, um, is not getting me anywhere. So I need to just sort of soften that down and I need to um, stop turning up to the Bible studies that I was finding so helpful because people mocked me for doing that and, and so on and so I just withdrew and a mentor of mine at school um, managed to catch up with me one day and said Let, let's meet up and I said oh no 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 you know, I was trying to avoid him because I wanted to be popular and I thought that would be a better way through and he for some reason 
took me to this verse, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. But that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And it was like a, a dagger in my heart. I suddenly realised, yeah, that's exactly what I've been doing. I've been pushing Jesus out of the picture and pretending that I'm trying to make more friends for him. But actually I've just been ignoring him altogether. And I realised there's a cost. If I'm going to put Jesus first, then people will find that weird. We must expect trials. We must expect persecution. We have this amazing message of hope. For those of you who are there up on the common, it's just... It was just so wonderful to be able to talk, and we'll think about this a little bit more. Now we've only got five, ten minutes. Um, it's just an amazing message, isn't it, that the God of the universe became a human being to live the life that we fail to live, and to serve us, and to give his life for us, and to die bleeding on the cross, to take the penalty of everything we deserve, to bring us back into relationship with God, to rise again, to, to give us new life. And that new life enables us to go out, not with any sense of arrogance at all, but with total humility to serve society around us, to serve the most needy, to give ourselves to them. It's a wonderful message. And it really can transform societies. And yet, as we go out with it, sometimes people say, no, 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 I'm not interested, I'm not religious, I'm not, no, no, I don't want to know. Why do do you always have to kind of tell other people what they should or shouldn't believe? No, 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 I'm not trying to impose it on you, I'm just trying to share good news. I'm, I'm like one beggar trying to share... Bread with another beggar. It's just so good. You've got to taste this. No, no. I'm okay. I'm self-sufficient. It's hard, isn't it? We mustn't be deliberately difficult ever. I think we were thinking about this a little bit after the parade um, up on the street. Was there a sense in which going out with um, lots of other churches and having loud music on the streets um, was irritating to passers-by? We've got to think about that. I mean, if all it was was they were just annoyed by the noise, then... It's not a great public witness. I think there was great things in it. It's showing joy, showing that we love Jesus on the streets. I think there was some wonderful things. We've got to be careful not to be irritating. But we've also got to recognise that people won't want to hear this. We didn't want to hear it. We were once enemies of this message. We thought we were self-sufficient. We thought we could provide for ourselves. We were once the persecutors. And there are so many examples in the whole Bible, in the New Testament in particular, of the persecutor becoming the persecuted. The Apostle Paul is one of the great examples, isn't he? Wanted to kill Christians. That was his job, pretty much. Wanted to wipe out this ridiculous sect. And then he was humbled by the Lord Jesus. And then he himself was persecuted by the very people he used to collaborate with. Well... As we get to the end of this section, this eternal promise of rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven has been misunderstood by many people across the ages and particularly by uh, atheist philosophers, um, one of the most famous of which is Karl Marx, who's kind of the founder of communism. And he said that religion, talking about this kind of teaching, that, that, that great is your reward in heaven... <laughs> is the opiate of the people, he said. It's like a drug, it's like opium, it's like heroin injected in the arm of poor people that makes them feel happy because even though they're suffering in misery now, well, one day they'll be okay and so there's no need to rise up. And he said, no, you've got to rise up now because there is no God and we've got to sort out society. Marx thought you could force the kind of change that Jesus is about to talk about through political change. 
But Jesus shows us in this passage and the one we'll be looking at next week that it needs to be from the heart. The end of this whole section we'll be looking at next week, Jesus talks about a tree and its fruit. And he says that a thorn tree can't produce apples and pears and so on. Only a fruit tree can produce fruit. (coughs) So Marx thought you could force change in society and look what happened. Communism is just an absolute disaster. Stalin murdered millions and millions of his own people in trying to force communism on them. Let's just look briefly, we'll come back to this passage next week, at the amazing transformation that trusting Jesus brings. Contented dissatisfaction that transforms lives. There's a picture of someone coming at you with a knife and then offering them a flower instead. I hope that helps it to stick in your mind. Verse 27 on the sheets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. Isn't that amazing? I've even been chatting with the the local imam recently. He said it's just completely impractical. Just look at verse 29. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. He says, can you actually do that? Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And then what's known as the golden rule has become known colloquially as the, as the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do, do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do you see that ending there? It's about your identity as being a child of God. You can't... Someone can't become a family member by doing good stuff. Being a child in a family is either by being born into that family or being reborn into that family, being adopted into that family, as Jesus uses the language of. It's an identity thing, but if if you have that identity in Christ, if you're trusting in him, then he does adopt you into his family, and God is your father, and then that shapes and changes everything you do. And it really does transform lives, it transforms society we need to think through, what what does it mean to put this into practice how can we do this it's amazing isn't it Jesus refuses to demonise the opposition, the very people who want to kill him he's saying you've got to love them and serve them as he was dying on the cross he said Father forgive them for they know not what they're doing some of those who actually physically executed were those who trusted in him and became children of God that slap on the cheek, that, um, that was a sign of one of the deepest insults you could do in the society at the time. I, I don't think he's so much talking about being punched, although I don't see why we wouldn't just endure that. He's, I think sometimes offering someone the other cheek can feel like, come on, come on, come on. What, what he's saying is just expect insult after insult after insult after insult after insult and be willing to suffer for doing good again and again. As we think about this and then try and chat and apply, I just want to tell you a a story that I read this week of 
a German man who put this into practice. It was in, the, um, in 1989, 1990, when the Berlin Wall was taken down, the end of the communist era, and East and West Germany were reconciled, and in Berlin there'd been this huge tension between East and West. Um, but suddenly there was joy with everyone, and actually everyone had always hated the Communist Party leaders, and so the whole of society were united together, but the people they hated most were the leaders, and the one man they hated the absolute most was the East German Communist Party leader, Chief Eric Honecker. And so he ended up without a job, without a home, without good health, he seems he was starting to suffer from cancer, without a pension, without a single friend in the whole country, except for his wife, Margot. And in utter desperation, he ended up coming to the door of a retirement home run by Pastor Uwe Holmer. Uwe Holmer had ten children, and each of those children had been systematically denied admission to the good schools and any university because of their faith. And the person who was in charge of that, just under Eric Honecker, was his wife, Margot Holmer. And standing on his doorstep were the two people who he should have hated most. And it was easy for Pastor Holmer to turn Honecker away because the church's retirement home that he was running was full, and it had a very, very long waiting list. And so he didn't need any excuses just to say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, you know, we, we can't look after But because it was so clear that Hanukkah's need was urgent, and the man standing before him was his supposed to be enemy, Pastor Homer, instead of offering him no existing beds in the retirement home, welcomed Eric Hanukkah and his wife Margot into his own home and cared for him and fed him until the day he died and hate mail poured into Pastor Holmer's house saying how can you dare look after this monster even some members of his own church threatened to leave or cut back their giving you see you can only do this kind of love if you understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. And we are like those enemies standing at his door and he's got every reason to say, I'm sorry, go away from me. And so when he calls us to serve, he's only asking us to do what he has done infinitely more than we could ever do. And you know what he calls that? He calls it fullness of life, and that's why our vision statement is shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ. And at the moment, we're in Streatham, and we want to do that in Streatham. We want to think through how can we use the gifts and the energy and the money and the time that the Lord Jesus has given to us in his grace to serve others that they might come to know him, whatever the cost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this wonderful message. As we think it through now, we pray that you would shape and change us to be more like you. Please, would we not think we can fake it, that we can somehow sort of staple gun fruit onto our dead trees. 
Instead would we put our trust in you, put our roots deep down into your gospel. By the power of your spirit would you shape us and change us so that we can do this by grace alone. In your precious name. Amen. Amen.